Bless your name, God, and help us to have a great time together studying Daniel. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I always, I was telling Bob, I said, you know, you, you're like, oh, I've got to prepare for my sermon, and you put it off, and then you start studying, and it's so much fun. You're like, this is the best time ever, and I want to go into, like, huge detail and get into all the minutia, but Chip, you know I can't do that, but I have to always find something to stump Nathan because that's my goal. So I'm, I'm always trying to find something that um, he doesn't know. And I can't always do that. I want to start out, though. Last week, we, um, we were talking, the, the main overarching theme of our sermon series is how to thrive in Babylon. And last week, we were talking about how to remain undefiled. How do you remain undefiled when you're in Babylon? And kudos to Emma. Shout out to Emma. She gave, she gave me a really cool idea. And I want to talk about this boy, and his name is... Mason Ramsey. Who's heard of Mason Ramsey besides Amanda and Emma? Any adult figure? Except for you, because I told you today. Jane. Okay, adult figure. Someone older than 25. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. So Mason Ramsey is a, um, he's 11 years old. He's 11 years old. And he started when he was a toddler, young, young boy, and he would yodel in Walmart. Seriously, he um, liked Hank Williams was his idol or whatever, yeah. He lives with his grandparents, not his, he's estranged from his parents, lived with his grandparents, his, grand, his dad, granddad was a fan of Hank Williams, so he taught him how to play the guitar. There's pictures of him on the internet at like three years old playing this huge guitar. So he started to yodel um, in Walmart, and he, various people would... Um, take video of him and he kind of he went viral the video went viral around the um, internet in a positive and a negative way because there were a lot of I guess this is the right word memes where they would thank you where they would show it and like kind of make fun of this yodeling because yodeling is a little bit hokey and country and all that kind of thing but you know what God uses the innocent of heart and does incredible things when we remain innocent and undefiled by what the world thinks. So don't start it yet, please. Can you hit stop? Thank you. Wait till I'm a little bit ready. So this is, this is him on the left, and this is the Ellen Show. And so he became so famous. His, it got like, um, I'm trying to think how many hits. 17.8 million views of him yodeling on the internet. 17.8 million. Of all these various memes and all these different, because he's been doing it for a long time, plus it went really viral, and people were making fun of him like crazy, okay? So, but Ellen got a hold of it, and you know how she does all these cool interviews and stuff. So this is an interview of um, him, so go ahead and play it now. There you go, thanks. Can we stop and let it buffer so that we can catch up the, get the words with the, 
let us let it buffer for a minute, you guys, and see if we can like get the words with this with the um. I know that's okay. That's what he's saying is he hadn't um, flown on a plane before, and they, of course they took him out by limousine, and he doesn't he didn't like the sparkling water that was in the back because it was sparkling. Okay, let's try it now. If it's not good, I'll tell the story because I'd rather not watch it like that. No, stop it. I'll tell the story. So anyway, he's um, currently 11 years old. He goes on this Ellen show. Um, and he said that one of his greatest dreams was to play in front of the Grand Old Opry, you know, and he'd love to do that. And so she has him on there, and she um, has him play one of his songs. And at the end, she tells him that she's got him um, this Saturday, the Saturday that this is going to happen, going to play in the Grand Old Opry. And the Walmart, she asked him, she says, how many times have you played at Walmart? Because Walmart really got a hold of this, right? And he goes, about 50,000 million times is what he said. So what she did was she, um, she collaborated with Walmart, and they had a concert in his hometown at the Walmart, and they gave him a $15,000 scholarship. But the thing that I really want to tell you guys is, I mean, that's a cool thing to be on the Ellen Show, and then they said, you know, he played at the Grand Old Opry and all that kind of thing. But what happened was he got signed by a country... Um, producer, I guess, out of Nashville, and he um, just produced a song called, is it Famous, Emma? It's called Famous, and it's, I don't know how many, it's had over 2 million downloads, like on Spotify and stuff like that. His, what'd you say? Top 100 on iTunes. It's a great country song, and his net worth is now between half a million and a million dollars and he's 11 years old. And when she asked him, she goes, what do you want to do? And he's like, well, I want to go to Florida. This is before, we did, she didn't talk about money. She, she said, what are your aspirations? She goes, well, I want to go to Florida and go to college and drive around in a big RV. You know, and I just thought that was so cute. But my point of that, you guys, is last week we talked about how do you stay undefiled? And here is this young kid, as innocent as he can possibly be, just singing in the Walmart, doing what he loves, regardless you know, a lot of kids made fun of him. There were a lot of stuff all over. Amanda, you know, right? Tons of memes all over the internet. And they were not flattering. They were not flattering. And yet the Lord can take stuff that we're doing and give us incredible favor if we will just stay the course, if we will be undefiled by this world and let innocence be our guide and let commitment be our guide. God can take that and do incredible things. And here's an 11-year-old. I looked him up on Wikipedia. This is so funny. Because, you know, now he has a wiki bio or whatever, right? So they have how old he was, when he was born, who he lives with. He's white. He's American. And then it said for girlfriend, not yet. You know, or, or partner, not yet. And I thought that was so funny because here's this incredibly young kid has got his whole life ahead of him and the favor of God is on him and that can be us when we choose to live an undefiled life so that's kind of a follow-up to last week's sermon and thank you Emma for telling me I didn't even know who that kid was for telling me about that so we're going to jump into chapter two of Daniel if the first chapter of Daniel can be kind of subtitled remaining undefiled in Babylon then the second chapter can be entitled remaining calm under pressure in Babylon. We all feel pressure in our lives, and especially from people that are not good or 
Maybe we're in evil circumstances and we don't know how to respond. And Daniel's going to give us an example how to respond when you're under pressure. So I want to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, we learned last week, is the king of Babylon. And he's the one who conquered Jerusalem and brought over all the exiles, brought over Daniel and his three friends. But what we also know about Nebuchadnezzar is he was one of the most powerful men in the region. In fact, some people say he was the greatest monarch of that time. He um, met Egypt in battle and conquered them. He took over his father and then him took over the um, empire from the Medes and the Persians. And he created um, Babylon, which was about 500 acres. The city was 500 acres. It, he built a hanging garden for his wife that he loved, which is considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It's that incredible. Nine-tenths of the bricks in Babylon, the city proper, and then 19 twentieths of all the rest of the um, building materials in the surrounding areas bear his name. That's how influential he was at that time. So nine-tenths of all the building materials bear his name. They have stamped his name on the bricks. That's how powerful he was. He reigned for 43 years. He lived till he was 83 or 84. And he was, he's the most discussed pagan king in the Bible, is King Nebuchadnezzar. He has that, that um, prominent, um, what am I trying to say, prominent um, reputation reputation of being the most talked about king that's pagan in the Bible. So let's start with chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we're just going to go through this chapter, and we're going to kind of just dig into it and pick it apart and see what it's got for us. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I'm reading out of the message for a change, because I really like it. In the second year of his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar started having dreams that disturbed him deeply. He couldn't sleep. He called in all of the Babylonian magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and fortune tellers to interpret his dreams for him. When they came and lined up before the king, he said to them, I had a dream that I can't get out of my mind. I can't sleep until I know what it means. And this word is actually troubled, and it means deep disturbance. And the thing about this, you guys, he didn't have one dream. He had several dreams. But this one in particular stood out to him, and it greatly disturbed him for some reason. He was so troubled that he called all his wise men. Remember, he had a court of wise men. And when we talk about wise men, they weren't just academics. They were fortune tellers, astrologers, um, a lot of occult-type um, people advised him. They called them Chaldeans, which was um, they would interpret dreams and have magical um, answers to people's questions. What's kind of cool about the uh, Chaldeans is they kept what's called a dream chart. They actually believed in dreams so much that if you had a dream, like if you were a, um, a royal person or anybody, they would, keep a, they would keep track of that dream and then what happened to you after that dream, and then that would become um, a basis for them to interpret other dreams because they would be like, well, if this happened to this person and they had this dream, if you have the same dream, then you're, the same thing's going to happen to you. So they kind of had a system. It's kind of like our legal system, how we have precedents. We'll say we'll interpret the law the way it was interpreted back 20 years ago. It, it informs our interpretation. That's the way the Chaldeans were. Well, if you had this dream, then it means this. So they would write and chart dreams down. And so that's why... Um, Nebuchadnezzar was calling them to say, I need you to interpret this dream. 
And let me just say this, and this is, Nathan, where I hope I got you with some stuff. Um, there, how many dreams do you think are mentioned in the Bible? 21. 21 dreams are mentioned in the Bible. 10 happen in the book of Genesis alone. Dreams are given by the Lord to both pagans and Israelites or Christians together. He often talks to both to a lot of people through dreams. I don't know about you, but do you guys ever get some um, prophetic or God dreams? Have you ever, anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. It's, it's a very common way for the Lord to communicate with people. Oh, going back to the um, dreams in the Bible, six were given to kings, one to a woman, and two to, a, to men named Joseph. Dreams usually involve a warning, some kind of instruction, information, or a prophetic revelation, a, a foretelling of things to come. There can be more than that, but those are kind of some general categories. For me personally, my dreams have usually been warnings, information, or um, a thing to come. Has that been you guys' experience? What, what do you mostly, exp I've experienced warnings, a warning dream before. Have you guys ever experienced that? We know that um, dreams are for today and not just back in the Bible times because it says in Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. I think one of the reasons that God uses dreams too, you guys, I don't know about you, but there's something about dreams. And I get my dreams early in the morning, my good dreams early in the morning. Sometimes I've had them right when I fall asleep, but mostly the Lord talks to me in the morning right between when you're waking up and you're asleep, that twilight time. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I think a lot of times that the Lord uses dreams is because we're in a very, our self-defense has kind of been broken down. We're in a very receptive state. Does that make sense? I think for me, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes my intellect gets in the way of things, and I can't hear the Lord the way I would want to. But he can sometimes speak to me in a dream because my, my self-defense is down. I'm more open, more receptive. Um, I think, too, sometimes it bypasses our pride. There are some messages that I think that we're not willing to hear for one reason or another. We're afraid or we have pride. We're going to see in Chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of pride and the Lord had to, had to bring him down a peg. And he brought him down. He, the thing that's cool, and I'll just give you a foretaste of this, in chapter 3, the Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar a warning dream and then delays the fulfillment of that dream a year, giving him a chance to repent. The Lord is always giving us a chance to repent. Whenever he gives a dream that has a warning or something like that about us, it is to give us a chance to come to our senses to give us a chance. Just like he was constantly telling the Israelites, sending prophets over and over to them, the Lord is always trying to talk to us. And sometimes we're so closed down to him from sin or pride or fear that dreams are the ways that he gets to us. And I don't know about you, but I have a prophetic dictionary at home that I sometimes look at when I've got different symbols in my dreams and I don't know what they mean. Um, I'll go say, what did this symbol mean in the Bible? How was it used in the Bible, and how maybe would it apply to me? The other thing I think that um, we need to be 
aware of, cognizant of, is when we have dreams, to take them seriously, to write them down. I don't know about you, but I've got a dream journal. I look back at my dreams and see what has the Lord said to me. And then how have that, how's that played out in my life? The other thing to look at when you're looking at a dream, and you're going to see this again in Daniel, what's the theme of your dream? Does it repeat? Do you have more than one dream about the same thing? I had dreams for a long, long time. I haven't had them in years. I had dreams for a long, long time of disaster, of catastrophe, of um, like, um, you know, those like dystopian dreams of something has happened and you're in a, a ruin or you're, you're surviving after a catastrophe has happened. I had them for years, over and over and over. And I look at my life and I look at some of the things that happened in my life and I'm like, how much of that was God trying to tell me something? Because the theme of it was not just catastrophe, but it was also protection after the catastrophe. It was, I'm going to have you, you're going to be okay, you're in this place, the rest of it has fallen down, it is, is um, a ruin but you've been protected. And I had that dream 10 or 12 times, different kinds of dreams like that. So it's really important when you have a dream that you take it seriously. It's the way the Lord communicated in the past, and it's the way he communicates now. And it's very valid. It's incredibly valid. And I think it's cool. You know, the other thing about Daniel that, you know, the overarching theme is God's in control. He's in control of all the nations. He's in, he's in control of history. I think what's interesting is when you look at the Bible, God spoke to a lot of pagan people through dreams because he cares about them. He, it's, it, the Bible, Old Testament, is the story of God and his chosen people, but it's also the story of God and humanity. And he cared about the nations in the Old Testament. He would continually send dreams to the rulers and say, hey, Pharaoh, don't take Abraham's wife as your own or I'm, you're going to have a curse on your whole, your whole um, court because you're doing something that's not righteous. You know, he was constantly, he cared about the nations even though the primary story is with Israel in the Old Testament. I think that's cool. I think that's interesting. I think God speaks to people in dreams today that are not Christians because he is trying to get through to them. Because, he's try because it's a way to get through their self-defense to an inner part that's not open to the Lord. Does that make sense? So here's the dilemma. The king has this dream, and it disturbs him greatly, but he so distrusts his court that he won't tell them the dream. They have to tell him the dream and interpret it, right? That's a dilemma. The fortune tellers, this is how they reply, speaking in the Aramaic language. So now Daniel, he was writing in Hebrew, and now he's speaking, he's switching to Aramaic. Long live the king. <laughs> tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it. You know, just tell it to us. I will look in our dream charts and try to interpret it for you. The king answered the fortune tellers, this is my decree. If you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'll have you ripped to pieces, limb from limb, and your homes torn down. But if you tell me both the dream and its interpretation, I'll lavish you with gifts and honors. Tell me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered, if it please your majesty, tell us the dream. We'll give the interpretation. But the king said, I know what you're up to. You're just playing for time. 
You know you're up a tree. You know that if you can't tell me my dream, you're doomed. I see right through you. You're going to cook up some fancy story and confuse the issue until I change my mind. Nothing doing. First tell me the dream, then I'll know that you're, what, that you're on the up and up with the interpretation and not just blowing smoke in my eyes. The fortune teller said, nobody anywhere can do what you ask. And no king, great or small, has ever demanded anything like this from any magician, enchanter, or fortune teller. What you're asking is impossible unless some god or goddess should reveal it and they don't hang around with people like us. That set the king off. He lost his temper and ordered the whole company of Babylonian wise men killed. When the death warrant was issued, Daniel and his companions were included. They were also marked for execution. So here's the dilemma. We've got the most powerful king in the known world has a really disturbing dream that has got him messed up. And not only does he say, I want you to, to interpret it, but you've got to tell me the dream so I know that you're for real. And if you don't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. That's a, that's a big dilemma, right? And here's Daniel. Remember, how old is Daniel? This is probably right after his three years of training. He's probably 17 to 19 years of age. And him and his three companions are now marked for death because the king had a dream. That's a big fat dilemma, if you ask me. Here's the thing, in the, in the King James, he doesn't say, the king doesn't say, um, I'll just tear you limb from limb. He says, I'll make your house a dunghill. Do you guys know what a dunghill is? I'm like literally a dunghill, a pile of manure kind of thing. There is actually precedent for this. In 2 Kings, it says, they demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal, and people have used it for a latrine to this day. So in the ancient times, it was considered really, really dishonoring. Not only would you be killed and be torn limb from limb, which sounds horrific, but your house would be raised and then people would use it as a bathroom. So that's kind of a dilemma. And that was what was in store for Daniel, who really had nothing to do with this whole thing. Daniel was just some little kid that had gotten exiled over to Babylon, and now he's going to be torn limb from limb and his house be a dunghill because the king's crazy, basically, right? But here's, here's what's really going on. Because the overarching theme is God is in control, here's, and this is the big, look at big bold letters. This is the big picture. The dream is about power, and the dream interpretation is a test of power. So the dream is about power, and the interpretation is about a test of power. And it really is, do the magicians and the fortune tellers and the astrologers have access to the interpretation, or is it God who knows both the dream and the interpretation because he's the dream giver? That's what's going on here, is we're pitting now pagan deities against God. Who has the answer? Not only the answer, but knows the dream. That's the main theme of Daniel 2. So Daniel's response, when he finds out that he's going to be killed toward limb from limb and his house be a dunghill, okay? So here's his response in uh, verses 14 through 15. When Arioch 
chief of the royal guards was making arrangements for the execution. Literally, he was the king's executioner. Daniel wisely took him aside and quietly asked what was going on. Why this all of a sudden? After Arioch filled in the background, Daniel went to the king and asked for little time so that he could interpret the dream. Daniel then went home and told his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what was going on. He asked them to pray to the God of heaven for mercy in solving this mystery so that the four of them wouldn't be killed along with a whole company of Babylonian wise men. So here we've got Daniel, 17 to 19 years of age. If it was me who was going to be torn limb from limb and all that kind of stuff, I'd be heading for the hills. I'd be figuring out how to get the heck out of there. I'd have an escape plan. Not Daniel. He's calm. He's cool. He's collected. And like Bob says, he's like, what is the wise thing to do? How do I turn to the Lord in this really bad situation and find a strategy, God's strategy, for holding up under pressure. And he says to the, the king's executioner, hey, take me to the king. Now, any of you guys remember Esther? You don't go to the king. You don't go to the king unsummoned. That gets you torn limb from limb in your house in a dunghill, right? That's, that's not something that is um, normal, especially when you're 19 years old and you're a Jewish exile. You don't say, I want a king. I want a, audience with the king. But that's what he did. He says, I want an audience with the king. Take me to the king. And he asks for more time. He also goes to his um, friends and he says, listen, I need you to pray with me. I need you to pray that God will have mercy on me. Give me the interpretation for this dream so that we can be saved. So there's three things that Daniel did in this situation. He remained calm. He turned to the Lord and said, what do I need to do? He also had courage, you guys. He said, I'm going to do something that could still get me killed, which is I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to ask for an audience with the king. And he exercised another thing that we sometimes forget, which is community. He went to his community. He said, listen, I need you to hold me up. I need you to pray. I don't know the answer here, but I need you to hold me up. There is our strategy for living under pressure in Babylon. You know, <laughs> I've been guilty of this, I'm ashamed to say. Rather than turning to God when you see something ungodly going on, you see someone in authority doing something ungodly or just unethical or wrong, and your heart burns inside, especially when you, you're high justice, you just want to go off. You want to fix it in your own flesh, or talk about it, or do something, instead of saying, God, what do you want me to do? What's the right strategy for turning the heart of a king who's pagan? He's not a believer. He doesn't have any respect for Yahweh, for the God of the Israelites. Why would he want to have anything to do with Daniel? And yet, Sometimes we're so guilty of taking things into our own hands when we're working for somebody who's evil. And the reality is, you guys, sometimes, like Daniel, like Esther, we're placed in the courts of pagan authority for such a time as this. And before we rebel against that placement, we need to ask the Lord, what is my place here? Because you remember, we talked about Daniel last week. He was probably no longer 
a man, I guess I'll talk about it since we talked about it last time, he was probably castrated. He was 17 years old. He was in a foreign land. And we see him living undefiled and following the Lord, even this super pagan situation and circumstance. So what I look at here is now here's Daniel. He's faced with something that's not only to personally destroy him, but people around him. And he's turning to God. And that is our lesson. We may be placed in a situation we don't like that's painful for us, but God has allowed it to happen. And we have to ask God, what is our place here? How do we exercise courage? How do we exercise um, calmness? And then we go to our community. We say, I don't know what's going on here. I really need you to pray. I don't know why I'm getting headaches every single day. I need you to pray for me. Help me get through this. I don't know why I'm in this job. I'm in a job that I can't stand, but I feel like God has called me there. What am I supposed to do about it? This is the lesson we get out of Daniel, is we turn to the Lord. And he gives us our strategy. So, and this is, this is what the dream is. So Daniel went back to Arioch, who had been put in charge of the execution. He said, call off the execution. Take me to the king, and I'll interpret his dream. <laughs> so Arioch didn't lose a minute. He ran to the king, bringing Daniel with him, and said, I found a man from the exiles of Judah who can interpret the king's dream. Are you sure you can do this? Tell me the dream I had and interpret it for me, is what the king says to him. So Daniel tells him, basically the dream is this. I'm not going to go through it because it's really, really long. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue, a tall, tall statue. The head is gold. The chest is the chest and arms are silver, the belly and hips are bronze, the legs are iron, and the feet are iron and um, clay mixed together. Now, most people, most scholars, this is getting into eschatology, okay? This, is gonna, um, this chapter is going to line up with chapter 7, and it's also going to go into Revelation. But this, again, is that overarching theme that God is in charge of the nations. He's in charge of history. So he's giving Nebuchadnezzar a picture of these different parts of the um, statue represent different um, um, empires. And, and scholars generally agree that the first one, the head of gold, is King Nebuchadnezzar himself in the, in the land of, of Babylon, the country of Babylon. It's the most powerful country during that time. And then the next one is going to be the, the Persians, the Medes and the Persians that come after him, then Greek, and then Rome. Now, People are going to disagree with all that, but Chip, that's the general interpretation. Am I right? Generally. At the, the end of this, he knows, the end of this dream, so this is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of him and all the empires to follow him. Remember, he reigned for 43 years. He had a really powerful empire. The end of this dream is a big rock coming out of heaven and being cast against the statue and completely smashing it. In demolishing it. That rock is the picture of God's kingdom that comes and demolishes all earthly kingdoms, and they cannot stand in front of him. And that's the picture that he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. Like I told you, I'm not going to do the last chapters of Daniel because that's all eschatology and get into Revelation, and I have no desire to do that. But that's the beginning of it is 
is Daniel. And the cool thing about Daniel is he's in this chapter two, it, like I said, it, the counterpart is seven. Two and seven go hand in hand. But the interesting thing about this dream and his interpretation of it, it sets Daniel up now to be an interpreter of dreams. He begins to um, flesh out and develop his prophetic gifting. You'll see throughout the book of Daniel, he has more and more dreams and he interprets more and more dreams. And then we get to the end of Daniel and he has all his end time visions and stuff. So this is the very beginning of his dream ministry, his prophetic ministry, if you will. And that's what God does for us as well too, you guys. You can develop and increase your prophetic gifting and your dream interpretation if you will, I don't want to say work at it, practice it. Everything comes with practice. I mean, Chris will tell you, you're not going to get fantastic muscles like that by going one time to the gym, right? You've got to go in a practice way. You have to go over and over. You have to be deliberate. You have to put more weight on your whatever, <laughs> on your thing, your machine. I should do, I should pick on Amanda. Um, but my point is, it's the same thing with prophetic ministry and dreams. The more you pursue it, the more you will see it, the more it will be revealed to you. And we see this in Daniel's life too. Daniel and Joseph were the only two people in the Bible that really had a ministry of dream interpretation. Isn't that interesting? And they both, and they both interpreted dreams for the king. So imagine if um, we really practiced our prophetic gifting and our dream interpretation, what, how we could influence the kings around us, the pagan kings around us. I, this is kind of political, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, we read a book by, I don't, can't remember, but um, you know who I'm talking about. Trump has been um, compared to Cyrus. Pardon me? Yeah, what's it called? Okay, he'll find it for me. But the idea being that if you can get righteous people put in top positions, you can influence the king in that position, whether they're a believer or not. Because remember, Cyrus is the one who allowed all the Jews to go back to Jerusalem after they had been exiled. He was influenced enough to release the people. And Trump has been compared to Cyrus. I'm not saying he is a Cyrus. I'm not saying anything about Trump. I'm saying that's what he's been compared to. And I think it's interesting that we sometimes, as believers, want to be so set outside of the culture that we can't influence the culture. Or we're resistant to being in a culture that offends us. Uh, right? That offends us. We're offended by the evil nature of the culture so we won't have anything to do with it. And then how does God use us? So I think when we look at Daniel, we're going to see a young man who didn't have any choice. He, he couldn't have a family probably. He lived his whole life in exile, never went back to Jerusalem, probably died in Babylon. Yet God used him. He's an, he called a great prophet by Jesus. God used him incredibly, and he has great messages for us if we will but submit our life to the Lord in a Babylon, in a culture that offends us, or sometimes persecutes us, which we're going to see in chapter 3. 
even when we're persecuted, how God uses us. And I just think, I love Daniel. I just think Daniel's a fantastic um, model for us. If we will submit and obey, God can do incredible things in a culture that we don't like and that we don't want to have any part of, but we're still in that culture. Right? So will you pray with me? And then we're going to pray with each other. Okay? So Lord, I just thank you for this... um, I thank you for this message, God, of being calm, cool, and collected under pressure in a culture that we don't like and sometimes offends us, Lord. Yet let us be a testimony to who you are. Let us be obedient, God. Give us favor. Lord, the end of this story is they had incredible favor because they obeyed you and they weren't afraid, Lord. And I just thank you for these people, God. I pray that you would bless them in every aspect of their life, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.